Good morning, and welcome to episode 732 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello, Sam. Hello. We have a guest today, one of our favorite guests. The Kansas City Royals clinched the AL Central last night, so we are talking to a man who played no part in their success, but was there the whole time, Andy McCullough. Hello, Andy. Now, do you guys, like, you guys buy chaos theory, right? <laughs> True. If there had been some other beat writer in the clubhouse, it could have destabilized the whole thing. That's 100% I mean, true. Like, uh, I'm not saying it's because of me that, it, that it's happened, but to say that I've been, you know, a meaningless actor in this, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, have you guys read Jurassic Park? <laughs> I would, I mean, that also applies to Ben and me, though. Sure. I mean, we're, look, it's all connected, man. The truth is out there. <laughs> Whether he played a part in the Royal Success or not, Andy is one of our favorite beat writers. Maybe the best beat writer, with the possible exception of any other beat writers who might be listening to this episode. And we're happy to have him on. I have so many questions. I hope you don't have any work to do today. Before I ask you Royals questions, I just wanted to relay a little observation from the ballpark yesterday that pertains to an ongoing wager that you two have. I oh, was, boy. I was watching Yankees take batting practice, and Alex Rodriguez was swinging away, and he just launched one. He hit one over the visitor's bullpen into the, the bleachers above it, and it was one of his last swings in that round. And it looked like he didn't see where the ball landed because he walked away from the cage and he turned to a coach who was hanging there on the side and he asked him where it went. And the coach gestured to a very deep part of the ballpark. And Alex did a little fist pump. He was really excited about how far he had hit this ball. And I just thought to myself, this guy has hit 686 (laughs) Major League home runs and he's still is so excited about hitting them, and he wants to hit them, and I started to believe that Sam might win this thing. I, uh, how, so how I just many gave, away is he right now? <laughs> I just gave an A-Rod fist pump, by the way. <laughs> no, I did too while I was listening to that story. I did the same sort of thing, because he's, uh, he's the best, man. I mean, who's a more interesting person in baseball than Alex Rodriguez? How, how many away from the record is he? And he's hit, 76. like, 30 this year? He's hit 32. 76? 76. He's hit 32? Man, I mean, I, I sort of buy the idea that the year off really did help him in terms of, like, being rested. So I'm curious to see how he bounces back next year. But, yeah, he's got a real chance, and I'm rooting for you, Sam. Yeah, so it's uh, he has 76 to go. And, like, the kind of the big question here is how close does he have to get to where it becomes automatic? Like, he'll stick around forever. Uh, mm. He'll do whatever it takes. Is there – I mean, who – who was it who recently was trying real hard to stick around to do something? And it wasn't this, but I think was, Johnny Johnny Damon had some oh, interest in hitting some sort of milestone. I yeah, what it was. Yeah, 3, Johnny 000. Damon's three thousand hits, and I don't know. Fred McGriff might have been this with uh, five hundred home runs. But the, normally, if this were not a Rod, if this were you know Albert Pujols, there would be a point where. Once he got to that point, he would certainly get there. Like, baseball would give Albert Pujols chances forever if he were sitting on 758, right. I believe. Now, A-Rod's not right. going to get that. Does A-Rod get any of that? Will a team, well, if, a- if A-Rod is well, at 758, is a team more or less likely to sign A-Rod that offseason? I don't know because we don't know what the culture will think about Alex Rodriguez in two or three years. I think... There's already been, I mean, you know, obviously a lot of players don't like him. A lot of teams, you know, don't like him still. But I think he's completely removed, you know, and since he's, like, found this new persona um, as, like, sort of a, you know, uh, just a lover of baseball and a, a grand old man enjoying the game, I I think, you know, he's people enjoy him. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he gets booed everywhere he goes on the road. And I'm sure lots of teams, you know, say now that they wouldn't like to have him. But... I'd be curious to see what the reception is for him in a couple of years, you know, whether, you know, things we know about performance enhancing drugs change, whether, 
you know, um, he says things that are, you know, that are interesting or provides maybe more insight on why, you know, he did the things he did earlier in his career. Um, you know, so I, I no, I mean, yeah, you would say off the top of your head, he probably won't get a lot of, you know, chances to have a goodbye tour with other clubs, but you know, the perception of him could be very, very different in a couple of years. Is there any chance that, I don't know if he has this sort of ceiling, but is there any chance that he, as he gets even older and even more chill, that he becomes a Giambi that teams love having around? Exactly. I mean, maybe. You know, he is the guy who, uh, in my limited experience, my one year covering the Yankees, the guys who had played with him before, you know, um, some of them really, really liked him. You know, guys like, you know, Brett Gardner, you know, really liked Alex Rodriguez. And he's uh, an absolute genius when it comes to, you know, discussing baseball. I mean, that's, you know, you remember that thing he told Ken Rosenthal when he was talking like a scout about Manny Machado. Like, he, he knows the game really, really well. And so, yeah, he's way more radioactive. And, you know, like, like, and, and so there's a lot more bad mojo around him than it would be around Giambi, I would say. But you look at how Manny Ramirez has kind of rehabilitated his image, you know, all these sorts of things. Um, but the difference being, obviously, that, you know, there's a level of antipathy, uh, at least leading into this season, between the Yankees and A-Rod would make it hard to believe that A-Rod would be kept around after this contract ends, but who knows, you know? I mean, re- I mean, there's no way to predict, you know, what things will look like in a couple of years. I don't think anyone could have predicted this. Oh, I will say he was so happy about hitting that meaningless homer in BP that he went over and signed some autographs and gave his helmet to a cute kid. So he's, uh, he's winning best. the hearts and minds of New York, one small child he's at a time. I love that guy, man. He's a, he's a gem. <laughs> I will also say this, that Pakoda's long-term forecasts do not like guys getting older than 40. And so this is very <laughs> pessimistic, but... By Pakoda's reckoning, if he plays 10 more years, he will still not get there. <laughs> Come on. I mean, well, that, you know, that, that, I mean, maybe that might be true. I don't know. You have to <laughs> take the human element into consideration. I'm giving you scouting insight based on what I saw in BP. You have to factor yeah. that into the projections. Yeah. That's what the Royals say when Pakoda comes up. <laughs> will he get, will he get an MVP vote? No, uh, no, no, because to vote for Alex Rodriguez, you kind of have to give that like sort of caveman, you know, voting. And those generally go to sort of for the team, you know, those generally sort of fall into like the Homer categories. Um, and I don't think anyone in New York would vote for him. It's, I mean, he's been great, but it's hard to put him on my ballot. I don't have an MVP ballot this year, so I haven't really thought about it too, too much. Um, but I don't, I don't know. Maybe someone will just to like troll. I don't yeah, know. I, I, great... I'll fuck the pass. I'll fuck the pass. I'll see the pass putting a 10 on his ballot. It's a great opportunity sure. for a, a grandstand vote. Like usually it goes the other way where someone who hates steroids people will turn in a blank ballot or something. This, you can go the right. other way. You can cast the a vote. I remember, vote. I remember it was either 2011 or 2012. Raul Abanez got a 10th place vote, and he was like the 17th or 18th best player on the Yankees that season. Um, so anything is possible. I I would I would say to any aspiring um, uh, clickbaiters out there, the difference between your MVP vote, uh, your MVP column, with and without a Rod, is probably. 3,000 page views versus 65,000 page views? Uh, well, are you saying you want to vote him for MVP or put him on the ballot? I think just putting him on the ballot allows you to then write your whole column about him. Yeah, I just, I think, and this is why I feel like, um, you know, we don't know what the atmosphere is going to be like in a couple of years. I really feel like the fur around him has died down. I don't think many people really talk about him as a lightning rod figure this year because he hasn't done anything dopey. I mean, he got into that, you know, he went into that thing with the, you know, the goofball who caught his 3,000th hit and, like, you know, in a in another sort of era, you know, Rod would have had every right to just trash that guy for acting like a clown about that. And he just was magnanimous and, and you know, didn't, didn't start a fight and, you know, he had every right to, 
you know, to trash the Yankees for fighting with him about his bonuses that were contractually agreed upon. Um, even though, the, you know, there's not any difference in the contractual language and, you know, that's or the, the interpretation of the language or whatever, you know, but, and he didn't do any of that. So it's, uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't think. I don't know if people are as interested in him as they were a few months ago. I think he's kind of made himself boring, which in a way makes him even more interesting to us. You know, sort of rotophile. Well, good Royals talk, guys. We're off to a good start. <laughs> we're doing. This is how it always happens. This has probably been really gratifying for fans of your early work, like people who followed you right. when you were with the Star Ledger, and no one knew about you yet, and you were like the little indie band. That was from the local yeah. area, and then you went mainstream and went to the KC Star, and your fans are like, I like this yeah. early stuff. Yeah, when I went to a paper with a smaller circulation. <laughs> I, <laughs> I love the Star. I, I, should, I, I love working at the Star. I don't ever want to leave. I, I didn't mean it. If I the circulation is low, you only have yourself to blame. You're not selling enough well, papers. Well, I don't even know if the Star Ledger exists anymore. So, no. <laughs> it's, it's, always a great, it's always a great position when you have to unprompted declare your loyalty to your boss. <laughs> I think that happens yeah. every time you come on. We we make you <laughs> declare that you're happy with your job. Pledge my fealty to my position, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Royals, let's talk yep. about Greg Holland, who you've been tweeting up a storm about, and he is done for the year which is not a huge surprise given how he's pitched lately and how hard he's thrown lately. But you filled in the backstory, which is pretty fascinating. So tell us what you have discovered about the saga of Greg Holland's UCL. Well, so Holland, obviously, this year has been not the same pitcher that he was last year. Um, That's been something that, you know, we've been writing about since April, that there's an obvious drop in velocity, that there was an obvious sort of lack of command and all sorts of things. And, you know, finally the sort of truth emerged is that he's been pitching with a torn ulnar collateral ligament since last August. Um, And that raises a lot of interesting questions about what is the right thing to do in situations like this? You know, where should a player's loyalties lie? You know, what you know should his priorities be? And um, I think, you know, what, what's happened is it's, it's a really, uh, you know, obviously I've been thinking a lot about this Matt Harvey story because I find it really, really interesting. And I, I look at Greg Holland as sort of uh, a, 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 an interesting, I don't know if it's a, it's a you know, 180 degree counterpoint, but um, uh, something of a counterpoint to what Harvey's doing, you know, sort of, raising this public stink about his innings limits, um, you know, in fear of injuring his arm, uh, re-injuring his arm when there's no known injury, whereas, you know, Greg Holland uh, chose to pitch with the torn ligament because um, he wanted to pitch. So basically what happened was last, either late August or early September, I believe it would be early September, the team examined him and the training staff effectively, you know, discovered based on, you know, tests of functionality and range of motion and due to the inflammation that there was most likely damage to his ligament. Uh, Do you know what what prompted that investigation? Did he I think he just said his arm hurt. Uh Yeah, I think he just said his arm hurt. Uh, essentially, but he never like walked off a mound or anything like that. For you know, he never left the game unless I'm totally misremembering, but I don't think that's true. So he he basically just you know his arm hurt, and he they did the uh, they looked at it, and you know the training staff basically you know informed him that most likely there was uh, ligament damage, and I do not believe there was an MRI because Holland basically said he did not want one. He said you know okay, so I've got ligament damage. What are my options? They presented him, you know, you can go the cautious route, you can get this, you know, you get more diagnostic examinations, you know, uh, there's a good chance, you know, that maybe surgery could be recommended, or you can do a more aggressive route, which is rest for a little bit and, you know, try and pitch as best you can. And Holland, you know, chose to pitch, uh, which uh, I guess, you know, some fans have, you know, found as, like, uh, objectionable. And to me, that's, like, flies in the entire spirit of, you know, the whole enterprise (laughs) You know, and so so Holland basically rested for ten days, pitched all through September, pitched through October brilliantly. I think he had a zero point eight two ERA in eleven playoff games. Um, he was not as lights out as he had been in the past. You know, there was definitely uh, some issues with command and the velocity was down a tick. But you know, Holland never let on how much discomfort he was in. And then um, basically, you know, in the winter, the team 
decided, you know, to, uh, they felt like the hope was that the winter would give him enough rest to come back and, and maybe continue to be effective. And they would just kind of play out the string and see how long effectively, you know, he could hold up. And, um, you know, they knew all year long that it was hurting him, that it was bothering him, but he continued to refuse, you know, getting an MRI. He continued to, you know, he was getting treatment, uh, obviously getting a ton of treatment, but, you know, he was not, he did not want to go basically in the tube and be told how bad the damage was. And then they kind of reached a breaking point. I mean, they've been approaching this breaking point for a while because uh, he had been, you know, really their least effective reliever for a long time, but because they had a massive lead in the division, they were able to, you know, basically afford him the chance to try and work things out. But they reached this point at last few outings where the fastball was like 87 to 89. The slider, um, you know, was not, was, could not be thrown for a strike. And he just, you know, he reached the point where he was not effective enough. And so they kind of removed him from the closing role earlier this week. And then he also asked how he planned to use him. Uh, and you know, so he had no definitive role for him. And I believe when Holland heard that, he effectively said, okay, well, if there's no role for me, let's go, you know, uh, let's go get this fixed. And so he's going to see Dr. Neil Alatrache next week, and almost certainly he's going to get Tommy John surgery. Uh, when you say he was getting treatment, do you just basically mean pain management? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure, you know, based on HIPAA and stuff, sometimes they protect us, so I don't know the exact details of what he was getting in terms of medication and stuff like that. But I mean, pain management, you know, uh, you know, heat pads, cool pads, all the sorts of, you know, so, you know, stim, all the stuff they can do to try and loosen up the arm. Because the ligament was still there. You know, the ligament is believed to be still intact, but it's torn. You know, it's not like a complete tear. So, yeah, he was able to pitch effectively. So do you think that the Royals are a better team? They're, they're better off because of this decision? Because... A lot of the times when we talk about players pitching through injuries, and often it's the case that the team doesn't know about the injury, so this is a little bit different, but often it seems like it's a counterproductive decision that by trying to grit through it, they do further damage or they play at a, a, a worse level and they end up hurting the team anyway. So if you could say, you know, Holland gets Tommy John surgery at the first sign of a twinge, an alternate reality is it better for the Royals or worse? Uh, I think it's worse. Uh, I mean, if you're talking about him getting Tommy John last August, I think or last September, I think it's I think it's worse. You know, yeah. I think it robs them of a pitcher who was very effective for them in September and October when they needed it. And to me, that puts the Royals in a very difficult spot because um, Holland was still effective. He was not, you know, necessarily as dominant, but he was still effective, and he did not want surgery. So as the team, I mean, you can't. Force the guy in the in the you know onto the table, and and you're paying him a good amount of money. Um, you know you need to try and recoup that investment. And he had earned the right to you know to to you know he said he could pitch. He had shown he could pitch. And now you know during this regular season, if the Royals say led by four games in mid August and not fourteen, I think you probably would have heard about this sooner because it was obvious his performance was deteriorating and. But because they had a 14-game lead, there were lots of times where they were winning by, you know, seven or eight runs, and they weren't in safe situations. And he would come in and, and you know, pitch like half, and then, you know, Ned Yost could say, well, you know, Greg's a little rusty here, you know. And, uh, you know, I mean, because teams lie about injuries all the time. And, you know, the hard part from my position is, like, I'm watching this guy and I'm talking to scouts, and you know he's, I mean, I've said this a hundred times, you know, to people during the season. And I, you can't really say it, you know, on the record because it's not, uh, or you can't really print it or anything like that. But I said conversation with people. We all know at the end of this year, Greg is going to be on an operating table in some form or fashion, whether it's shoulder clean out, whether it's bone spurs, whether it's a debridement, or whether it's Tommy John. We all know his arm's not right. And, you know, you can't print that. You can't really say that to readers because it's, you know, it's not based on, you know, absolute fact. Um, it's just kind of conjecture. But watching it, you can tell there's something wrong. So anyway, um, I think if, if the lead had been, uh, you know, lesser, then they would have switched over to Wade Davis earlier in the summer, and Holland probably would have gotten an operation already. I, I, but I don't know really how that makes the Royals necessarily better, because either way, they're facing a year next year without Greg Holland, and they kind of have a dilemma of how much to pay him, whether to tender him, um, whether to try and bring him back, you know, all those sorts of things. What he's done has now given every hot take writing columnist a go-to example of someone who a pitcher should try to be as tough as. <laughs> Anytime a pitcher goes on the DL or refuses to 
pitch in the postseason because his arm is hanging off of his body. It'll be, why couldn't he be more like Greg Holland? Yeah, no, I'm curious what you guys think of it, but what you guys think about that, that part of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel basically like I don't like how players are sort of pressured by each other or by the culture or whatever or by hot take columnists to do this against their will. And I also admire a player who advocates for his own career in whatever way he sees that. And if you think that the most important part of your career is having the opportunity to pitch in the 2014 World Series, I sort of respect that a, a player would would do that because that's where you, you know he puts his priorities. It's not to me it is you know technically selfish perhaps by because everything we do is technically selfish. If you choose to be altruistic, you're doing it probably because for some reason it validates your own existence right. or whatever. But it doesn't seem like a, an overtly selfish thing to do, and it does seem like a way of making today matter. And so I'm fine with that. I'm just not sure in this case I see any possible endgame that was going to work. I mean, what I don't get – I guess what well, I don't I, get is I don't get the plan. What was the plan? How did they see this working the plan out? Was to pitch him, the plan was to pitch him until he blew out. I mean, yeah. he had a torn so, he had a torn ligament. There was no way to fix it except for with a surgery. He was great. And, this is, and, and I, I mean, would say if he if he had this last August and September and October, he was great that whole time. So I don't really good. I don't blame him for yeah. thinking he could keep doing it for a while. I mean, but and and it's not like and but but what I would say is like it's it you know th- there is obviously a pressure. Uh, I think it just depends on the injury. Like this isn't a. Um, a guy coming back too quickly from an ACL. This isn't a guy with concussions. Um, this is a guy who knew his arm was going to blow out. And so, what do you do when you when you're told that your arm is going to blow out? You know, and you're in the middle of a pennant race or a playoff race. Do you go and get on an operating table and tell your teammates, "Hey, good luck, guys," or do you pitch until the thing blows out? And he chose to pitch until the thing blew out. No, and and that's uh, up to the point where you start thinking about where they are now, which is that there's a pretty good chance that they've now lost him for two postseasons, this year and next year. Maybe maybe he's back right. next year. Maybe he's back next year, but there's a good chance that he's not. And so right. if now if he had had an, the surgery last September, it's the exact same situation, two, two postseasons. And as you guys point out, he was really good. I think that the way that he pitched through it last year, I don't begrudge him that at all. At a certain point, though, then you start thinking, okay, well, if we're if we're looking at this as a way of getting the most value out of my arm or the way that, I mean, if, if he is stating that his goal is to help his team as much as he can, I'm not sure that the smartest thing to do was wait for it to blow out and well, get, so to, should, get to get to late September. In the offseason, should he have undergone surgery and cost himself the chance to make eight and a half million dollars in arbitration? I don't think that I, I my impression is that he was he broke that he really broke sometime in the middle of the year of this year. Right. I mean, he had it. I mean, had he this, showed no, he showed up broken like he showed up with a torn UCL. Like the thing was like it, it doesn't those don't get better. Like it was torn and he was managing it. But he showed up broken. He was sitting 91 all spring. I mean, we you know, like when I say like the stars and writing about this, like it's been you know, like, I mean, it's one of the reasons, like, Greg really doesn't like me. It's because, like, I've been writing about this, you know, for six months that he's not right. Like, so he showed up sitting 92, 93 in the regular season. He sat 96, 97 last year. He stopped throwing his splitter um, in part because it hurts to throw a splitter when you've got, a, you know, an elbow thing. So he lost his, you know, one of his great breaking balls. So, I, I mean... It, it, the option is really pitch or get surgery, and either way, neither one is palatable because you know at the end, like you're gonna break or you're gonna need the surgery. So I, I don't know. Yeah, he was sitting like 95 in the postseason though last year, and to Which me, there's a big close to 96. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying is that in the, <laughs> right, the okay. that he basically showed up. He wasn't, in my opinion, he wasn't broken. He had he had an an impediment to his future success in the postseason, but he was still a good pitcher. You could imagine, yeah. well, hey, maybe he's going to be able to pitch through this. As, I mean, every once in a while, you do hear a, a story about a guy who was told something at 28, and then he retires at 41. And you're like, oh, I guess that never turned out. Like, I think Tim sure. Hudson had something like that, or Tim Hudson sure, probably sure. not because he had. I think Irvin Santana's had a had a torn ACL for a while. I think. 
Yeah, wow. and well, yeah. Then so anyway, so I don't think that there's anything wrong with the, looking at a guy and going, well, hey, he's making it work. He's at 95. I do think though that when you show up in spring and he's at 91, 92, at that point you realize, oh, okay, we fell off of a we fell off of a tier. Now we're now we're down here and the incentives change a great deal. And yeah, I probably would have had, I I don't know, I would have probably pressed to have surgery at that point. Well, as the player or the team? As the team. As the player. Yeah, but as the... T- I, I, well, what I think, and, you know, I my... Based on just, you know, sort of retconning a lot of this into conversations I've had all year, I wonder if the team felt like he was going to hit a wall much earlier than he did. Yeah, um, the fact that, that Greg Holland saved... 32 games this year and had a 3-8 ERA with a torn UCL um, is really a testament to what a great competitor and pitcher Greg Holland is. And so if there was a chance that that guy could be effective for them, I think they wanted to ride it for as long as it went. But I think when they saw what he looked like in April and May and June, um, you know, there was a game and I remember in uh, Milwaukee where he came in with like a six-run lead and like loaded the bases with none out and they had to pull him and like Wade Davis had to come in and save, you know, like, you know, save his ass essentially. Like, I think there was a sense that at some point, okay, you know, he's going to hit a wall and he's just not going to be effective anymore. But then the team was so good that they could win a lot of games with out-save situations. He could get a lot of saves where there was a three-run lead and he could give up one run. And, you know, it wouldn't be, and, you know, Yost could say, ah, oh, well, you know, he's still getting saves, you know. And so there, there's a lot of things in here. But as the team, you can tell a guy, you know, he wants, you, they want to examine him. But you can't force him in the MRI tube, I don't think. And you can't force him to have surgery. And I think the team also knew that this winter they were going to have a real reckoning with what to do with Greg Holland. Because in arbitration, his salary was going to go up to at least ten and a half million, probably eleven, maybe twelve. He is not their best reliever and they needed to figure out what they were gonna do with him. So I think all along, you know, there was a thought that uh, we need to ride him as hard as we can because we know that next year he may not be here. You know, we might have to trade him or we might have to non tender him. We might have to do something, you know, uh, aggressive with it. And so you just wanna milk as much value as you can with the with the asset. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to. I'm, I'm not saying that anybody behaved in bad faith or that anybody's an idiot or anything like that. And and I think that everybody, s- to some degree, behaved predictably. I'm I'm saying that the there are there are, in any case where a player is playing through injury, there is the the incentives thing. You're like, okay, well, so what kind of crazy incentives are pushing him to do this that we find objectionable? But the other thing is just that it it seems like in a lot of cases there is a there becomes a lack of perspective about how much you're actually adding to the team, and a lot of players seems like they right. play through injury or they play through fatigue, and they don't see that in fact you're no longer the best option for your team. And right. this just sort of feels like right. a case where if I were you know if I were the uh, omniscient narrator. I would probably have pointed out that Greg Holland's plan, while understandable, didn't seem to have any real great outcome attached to it and that he was no longer helping the team. And so if I could have, if I were the Royals, I would have probably shut him down in spring training when it became clear that he wasn't coming back. But let me ask you this. If let's say the Royals had gone to him, because right now, don't they they basically have to non-tender him, right? Like. You can't pay him. I think too. so. Yeah, I mean, he's you, otherwise yeah. he's going to make. You're basically paying him twenty five, twenty six million for the next for twenty seventeen if you pay him to rehab, right? Well, he's he's the free agent after this year, so oh, even more so was... you have to not. No, even more so you have to not tender him. Yeah, I think if I think if he was had two years of control, maybe you do tender him. But with, but as a defending free agent, I mean, you're paying him to rehab, essentially, uh-huh. and that doesn't make sense because then he could go on the open market, and if another team wants to give him a three year deal, you know, he just switched over to. Scott Boris, you know, then all of a sudden you're put in a really crappy spot. So yeah, it's like a, it, it's almost like a, a must nonsense or a must renegotiate in a way that on a year. So yeah. he potentially cost himself a ton of money by deciding to do this, right? I mean, if he, well, had... I mean, it depends on the timing. I mean, if he shows up in spring training and you know and gets surgery, I think. Uh, he basically effectively ends his Royals career. Well, I don't know if he effectively ends it. Um, Why? He's, but yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. he's still getting well, he's still oh, gets the eight and a half. Yeah. He gets the eight and a half. I mean, he may, you know, so, okay. So the options are he gets surgery last September. Then he's not going to get the eight and a half million he made this year. I guess the most craven one 
would be for him to show up in spring training and then get the surgery. That would probably be the one that makes him the most money. It's also the least competitive and the most that goes against his nature. You know, I mean, you know, Greg Holland, and this is, you know, you're getting into sort of psycho battle shit, but, you know, he's a, uh, you know, he didn't grow up, you know, affluent. He, uh, you know, walked on at uh, Western Carolina. You know, he's a 10th round pick. You know, he built himself into, you know, one of the great relievers in baseball the last four years. I mean, you know, you don't get to that point by, you know, shying away from a challenge. And I think he viewed this as, a challenge, you know, a, a way to, you know, to go, you know, to manage it, uh, knowing that at some point at the end of this, he was going to have to get arm surgery, you know, and so if you're, I mean, if the goal is to make as much money as possible, uh, which, you know, for some players and, and maybe for all players, that's what the goal should be, you know, the, but if, if the goal is to, you know, to win championships and to, you know, maintain the status you have among your peers, pitching is probably, you know, the better option. That's kind of part of the rub of sports. And I think, you know, these, uh, I think a lot of times we, you know, sort of because the arguments for playing through injury uh, can be so detrimental to players, a lot of times people sort of negatively react to them and say it's like sort of, you know, craven, you know, to, to, to cheer for a player who's playing through pain when he's hurting the team. But it's also like, that's, you know, that's kind of what the whole thing is about. Like, you know, it, it sucks that there's like awful, side effects to this in football and, you know, in other sports, but, you know, with like with painkillers and stuff, but that's kind of the cross we bear, you know, caring about sports is that we know that in order to get the stuff we enjoy, these people have to put themselves, you know, through things that are not physically sustainable. And, you know, Greg Holland chose to pitch with an aching arm. And that's, you know, maybe it makes me a, a columnist from 1963, but I think there's something admirable in that. Yeah, I mean, basically, especially in baseball, baseball is such a sport of attrition that when you sign, you are essentially giving your body to a team so that they can, you know, burn through it. And a part of the game is obviously getting hits and runs and stealing bases and doing all those sorts of things. But part of it is just being a healthy body and you agree to let them use your body until it breaks. You're not even burning the ships. You're burning the body. Yeah, uh, I would... Not say that. <laughs> I'm writing a story for this weekend that involves a motivational speech from Raul Banya, so I thought you guys should know. <laughs> he should, you know, they should, uh, they should probably sign him right now. They should agree to sign him for like three million for next year, so that if he does come back in time for the postseason, he gets to be a oh, royal. I you're talking about Raul Banya. No, not Raul. <laughs> so he gets, he gets to be a royal. It doesn't look quite. I mean, they're. If, in a way, they're going to get kind of killed for the eventual non-tender, not killed, everybody will understand it, but it looks like, yeah. wow, this guy this guy totally, you know, gave everything for you yeah. and, and you non-tender mm-hmm. him. Pay him $3 million, he gets to rehab right. in your facilities, he doesn't have that mm-hmm. awkward, he doesn't have that awkward postseason where he's sitting on the bench and everybody knows he's about to get cut and, and all that. Right. And, just, and then, and right. then if, if everything works out and he comes back in 11 months, then you've got a dominant reliever in the postseason, maybe. Yeah, I mean, you could also see a, a thing where they pay him like a $12 million two-year contract, you know, like that, you know, two, three million for for uh, next year and then, you yeah. know, bank on maybe him coming back as a, you know, as a certifiable, you know, beast uh, in 17. I think you know, they did something uh, like that with, with Chris Medlin um, that's paid some dividends this year. You know, uh, I think there's there's definitely, you know, they kind of did it with Luke Hochaver and, you know, Boris represents both guys. And I, and I think Greg Holland wants to stay with the Royals. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, there's certainly a chance, you know, that, that they could do something like that. And, and maybe that was, you know, maybe, I mean, I don't think necessarily that there was a better, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It, 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 it's complicated. You know, it's hard to say what the, what the right thing to do is. I don't think there is necessarily a right thing to do in this scenario. I guess Yost gets a retrospective pass for always using Holland for one inning at a time. Is it, <laughs> is it possible that every closer is pitching through a torn UCL? just on every team and that every time a manager doesn't use the closer in a tie game on the road, it's really because his elbows. Well, about you to know, yeah, I was going to say, we know that one of the, the main symptoms of UCL tears is you cannot pitch in a tie game on the road. It's true. <laughs> if I were a manager getting killed for his bullpen usage, I'd just sort of be like <coughs> Holland. Just, I wouldn't, uh, I could wouldn't. You, could you imagine if, if, 
if Ned just one day, like, was like, well, I mean, we all know Greg has a torn UCL. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, I thought Eddie was great from the sixth on, you know, <laughs> it just would have been, that would have been funny. You know, because Ned, like I said to Cassio Sipsfans, so what went into the decision to shut down Greg? And he goes, well, he's had a torn UCL since last August. I'm like, oh, thanks. Thanks for the update. You know, we're... <laughs> Thanks for cluing me in. As, How he, many... as I ask repeatedly, is he healthy? Is he healthy? Is he healthy? Yeah, yeah, he's fine. He's fine. So, <laughs> so I'm just Andy. I you don't know this, but how many pitchers in baseball right now do you think are pitching with a torn UCL knowingly? Um, like somewhat. Well, knowingly, knowingly is an interesting question. I don't know. I mean, fifteen percent. Wait, 10%, you think 20? you think ten percent of pitchers have had the Greg Holland decision before them and chose what Greg Holland chose? Well, uh, I mean, partially torn, like knowing that there could be ligament damage. I think, I think all pitchers know that there's a time limit on their arm. You know, I think, like, do I? Okay, do I think fifteen percent of pitchers have had that conversation where a trainer says to them, "You have a you probably have a torn ligament." Probably not, but I think. I think a hundred percent acknowledge that there's a good chance they could blow out at some point. And I think a good amount of pitchers know that when they are managing some sort of discomfort in their elbow, you know, that, that there's a serious chance that they have a damaged ligament. So yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, somewhere from 10 to 15 to 25%, you know, know that there's something wrong with their arm and they choose to pitch through it. All right. One topic down in a cool 20 minutes moving right along. Wait, can't we, we can't we just keep having Andy on? <laughs> different topics every, every day. Different question yeah. about the Royals. That'd be nice. There's not much going on with the Royals. I don't know. <laughs> well, I want to ask you about the the Cueto Sal Perez thing because it's sure. an intersection of two things I love: Johnny Cueto and catchers mm-hmm. and framing. Yeah, framing. Yeah. So, so the story, as you reported it, Cueto was going through a rough patch. Everyone was wondering what's wrong with Cueto. And then he sort of uh, sheepishly suggested at some point that he wasn't entirely comfortable with the way Sal Perez catches. And of course, Sal Perez is a multiple gold glove winner. He's got a great defensive reputation. And so even a pitcher with Cueto's cachet wasn't willing to just bring this up in month one with the team. So he mm-hmm. prefers his catchers to set a lower target or to set a target where he is actually intending to throw the pitch. And so Perez has now adjusted and catches differently and Cueto had a good start. So I guess my first question is, does this make sense timeline wise in that Cueto came over and had some success with Perez catching the way he was catching? So is it a post hoc explanation that he is concocted because he wasn't pitching well and he was searching for an explanation and two Perez by the best stats we have has never rated as a good pitch framer he seems to be a very Mm -hmm. good game caller is this something that you have any sense that other pitchers thought also but were hesitant to say well I think most well, okay, as far as the first question, there was, if you watch these guys work together, even during Cueto's first four or five starts, uh, when he was getting good results, there were a lot of mound conferences, there was a lot of you know shaking off, there was a lack of sort of rhythm to the outings that, you know, when you watch it, you're like, well, I mean, it's the first time they're working together, Cueto's kind of a weirdo in terms of like his pitching style, you know, he's got all these shifting tempos, and he's got like six different pitches and three different deliveries. So it's understandable that they're working out the kinks. And then Cueto went through a real sort of crisis of confidence, I think, because he was having bad results. He put a lot of pressure on himself. You know, he was telling sort of friends that, you know, he knew that the Royals basically only brought him over here because they wanted to win a World Series. And he felt like, he, you know, the only guy who wasn't contributing to that uh, which, you know, contributed, you know, which sort of didn't help his mental state. And so that, you know, tended to breed him trying to overthrow the baseball. And so, you know, he's trying to, uh, you know, over manipulate spin, you know, add velocity in that harm's location. And then you combine that with, you know, sort of the, the issues he had feeling comfortable with Perez. And it's a pretty crappy pitcher. You know, he had a 9.57 ERA for five starts. And he just kept like spinning these like cutters, like at the, you know, at the, the waist. And, uh, you know, they were just getting crushed. And um, eventually, you know, it took him kind of saying, like, okay, like, here's what I need. They basically had a meeting where they were like, what do we need to do to get you going? 
because he was pretty quiet about like, you know, what he wanted. He just was telling him he was healthy and that, you know, he would get it together and which wasn't really communicating what he needed. And so he gave a, you know, a small set of instructions, you know, Perez needs to set a lower target and he needs to set up later. He needs to back off the plate a little bit. Um, and that puts some strain on Sal because he's a huge guy, you know, he's 6'3", 6'4", 240, um, you know, but now he's kind of could get down on one knee in the crouch to try and, you know, set as low a target as possible. And, you know, the results have been okay so far. You know, he went seven and gave it up two in his first start with that. He went seven last night and gave up three. And, you know, he looks he looks better. And, and, and it's not even so much that, you know, Perez is going to feel in strikes or, uh, you know, or frame better. It's that Cueto is going to feel comfortable on the mound. And he looks more comfortable. He's more willing to challenge hitters with his fastball, which is what he needs to get ground balls. And so I think, you know, the, the uh, results have been, uh, you know, the, the changes look like they've been pretty effective. And what was the second question? I'm sorry. Second question is, do you think any other pitcher experienced this sort of discomfort or any sort of dissatisfaction with the way that he caught over the years and was just afraid to speak up about it? Is it just a unique yeah, to Cueto? Good question. I think it might be, yeah. I mean, I think it, uh, it might be unique to Cueto and that he seems like he has something of a, uh, and this is hard to say, but, you know, based on just from what people kind of say about him, he's, he is somewhat, you know, deferential in a situation like this. You know, he's not, you know, a, lo- a lifelong royal. You know, he's coming into a new situation. And so I think that sort of hampered the lines of communication in ways that maybe uh, in another scenario, you know, like I know like Chris, Chris Young, for example, like does not have sort of any issue communicating what he needs and when he needs it. You know, he's very upfront and sort of blunt about that. Um, just sort of, you know, this say like, this is what I like, you know, this is how we're going to pitch this guy, et cetera, et cetera. And some guys are just different, you know, like Andy Pettit liked to be led, you know, where he was going and versus, you know, some other guys like to, you know, take more charge on the mound in terms of, you know, the decision-making. So it, it just kind of depends. I, I think Perez is a, is a good defensive catcher. I think his reputation is a, a little overblown because, you know, his, his pitch framing is not the best. His game calling is okay. He has a tremendous arm, um, obviously, but, you know, he's still growing in some of those roles. So, I, you know, I think it, it made it tougher in that Perez is not Yadier Molina, but his reputation and standing within the Royals, you know, make him maybe have a similar place in terms for a new guy coming to try and, you know, give his preferences to and have the changes that Cueto asked him to make carried over into non-Cueto starts? Because it seems like it would be yeah. a tough thing to, I mean, if the situation were reversed and a catcher said, I don't like your mechanics, can you change your mechanics when you <laughs> pitch to me? That wouldn't work so well. This is maybe not quite <laughs> as drastic as that, but it's still... You should have a conversation with, you should have a conversation with Danny Duffy. Say, Danny, I, I like it when you throw strikes. Can you throw strikes? <laughs> I only Good talk to him when he's wearing a bear suit. Oh, he's the best. That guy. He is. He is the best. Um, I think Perez has been doing a little bit with Volquez. He did it. Is it is the next night he he tried it a little bit and they liked it. So uh, Volquez is way more of you know just tell me where to just tell me where to throw the ball and let's do it. And I think because they had some success with it the previous night, you know, Sal tried it out a few times and Cueto was like, oh, that's great. You know, whatever. Just, you know, tell me where to, you know, he's, he's way, I mean, so it's all stylistically different, you know, like Cueto and Volquez, you know, guys who have, you know, I guess kind of similar stuff. Uh, well, not really, but you know, but they're just completely different in terms of like their, their temperament on the mound or what they're looking for. And I mean, the entire staff has sort of broken down. It, it, it doesn't help that Greg Holland tore his UCL, and it doesn't help that Cueto wasn't communicating so well with Perez, but it's not just those guys. It's just Dave Cameron wrote something earlier this week about how the Royals have had like the worst second half or worst month or so pitching performance of any team that's qualified for the postseason in a long time, and who knows whether that affects anything about their postseason chances. We've seen lots of teams struggle down the stretch and then be great once the postseason starts but is this a concern about it carrying over or is there a sense that they're kind of playing out the string because they had such a big lead i think it's more the latter than the former uh, at least what the team will say i think you know if you watch them yeah there's concern i think it's hard to come up with a pitching staff that would like to see face the blue jays for seven games but i feel like if the royals are right they might have the arms to do it, and that they have a ton of power righties. Um, you know, they're going to start four right-handers in October, Cueto, Volquez, Ventura, and Chris Medlin. Obviously, the back end has Davis, Herrera, 
Hochaver has been okay. Uh, Madsen has been great. And then you've got, you know, Franklin Morales, Danny Duffy, maybe Chris Young. So, I, I mean, that's, I don't know. I mean, yeah, they've been, you know, they've, you know, pitched like garbage for like, you know, four weeks or six weeks or however long it's been. They haven't pitched great. But there is a ton of talent on that roster. Um, there's a ton of power arms, you know, guys who are going to get uh, strikeouts, uh, especially in the back end. And so um, it's it's a good staff. I mean, who who the hell knows how well they're going to pitch, though? Like, I mean, yeah, there's, I mean, I don't know if, it, if there's a predictor of anything in postseason success. Like, I mean, I'd love to know what it is because I was, like, totally right about it. Um, but I don't know. Like, so, yeah, I mean, it, it could be a problem, but it could not be. I, I like... They're not like rolling out, you know, like four shit ballers like as their starters and just kind of hoping that they'll all go like four innings. Like they've got guys with power stuff who can who can go deep. Uh, will they? I don't know, but they have that potential. Mm-hmm. One more thing about Perez. I know he's he's the most good natured guy in the world, and a catcher's job to a large extent is to make the pitcher feel comfortable, whatever that entails. But was there? Any sort of hurt feelings, do you think, over this, uh, I don't like the way you catch so much? I don't think so. I don't think it, it wasn't necessarily framed as, I don't like the way you catch. It was more, here's what I need. Yeah. You know, here's what I like. It wasn't like, you know, Sal, you're a jerk. Um, you know, like, for it, it was more like, I don't feel comfortable, like, here's what here's what I like. I mean, yeah, did, did Cueto have some, you know, initially, like, head shaking the first couple times they worked together where he was like, what the hell is going on? Yeah, he did. But I don't think, you know, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think Perez's feelings necessarily were hurt. And if they were, you know, that maybe they all, you know, got drunk last night and talked it out. Mm-hmm. There was another Clubhouse-related thing. Did you see the thing in the CNBC analysis of the equality of payroll distribution? You know, it came out recently, and there was some analysis that the Royals' payroll is the most evenly distributed among their players, and there was some speculation that maybe this would enhance clubhouse chemistry because you don't have haves and have-nots, and and I think the Yankees were kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum, and as the only beat writer I know of who has covered both of those teams in the last (laughs) three years, have you, do you think there's any validity to the idea that not having guys making the minimum and other guys making 25 million could enhance clubhouse chemistry is that is the pay ever like a a looming thing that is kind of coloring players interactions Hmm, that's interesting i don't know i mean they're all rich so (laughs) it's not like one guy is making 25 million and and one guy is making 50 grand Mm -hmm. and a lot of i don't know i mean a lot of times you you hang out with your peers in the clubhouse you know so I don't know if necessarily the guy who is making $25 million is spending a lot of time with the rookie, you know, who, well, I mean, I guess more the, I don't like what would the disparity with the Yankees would be what that like Jason Shreve is mad that <laughs> Sabathia makes a lot of money. Like, I, cause I think baseball players generally view their profession as a meritocracy and, that's why they call free agency a privilege. And mm-hmm. so if you can play well enough to get through arbitration and make free agency, you know, you deserve, you know, that's kind of one of the things the union hammers, uh, you know, all the time. It's like, if you, if you earn the right to become a free agent, you know, like you deserve whatever money people are willing to pay you. But I don't know. I mean, I haven't really thought about it that critically. So I'm trying to like think it out loud, but like, I just don't know like when payroll would become such a huge issue. Like, I guess you could say like, man, you know, that guy sucks, and he's also making $15 million. But what's the difference in saying, man, that guy sucks, and he bats third for us? Uh You know, like, it's you're going to hate that guy either way because he sucks. Right. And I guess it would be tough to untangle from other factors that could cause dissension because if there's an unequal pay structure, it's probably because there's unequal ages on the team and unequal experience levels, and so... Maybe all of those things could be factors that would make it harder to gel. I don't know. I mean, in my experience, the thing that causes the most clubhouse attention is guys who just don't shut up. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's the thing that bothers people. It's just guys who just talk too much. Beat like, writers who keep asking if your elbow's okay. 
Well, yeah, that too. Yeah, uh, but 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 good. Like, I mean, it's like it's like any office, you know. Like, you don't necessarily think about how much money the guy makes. You're like, God, I just wish, you know, Rick would shut up. Like, I'm just trying to work. Like, I'm just trying to do it. And Rick won't shut up about it at bat. You know, like I think that's kind of what annoys people at the, in general. Like, I th- I think I don't know. Ball players are people too, Ben. <laughs> it's true. And my last question about the Royals. You really, you really did have a last question. <laughs> I did. They're so interesting right now. Yeah, yeah. In my opinion, podcasters' main problem is with other podcasters <laughs> who just won't shut up. <laughs> I, I haven't to... been asleep for the last fifteen minutes. <laughs> We're the yin and yang. You want to end every episode after ten minutes, and I want it to yeah. continue forever. So we're in a constant battle. Ben, can I just interrupt at least so that another voice is heard? I just want to say, going back to going you have back an to open mic, you're allowed to you're allowed to chime in no, at any time. Once, once it gets to oh, a certain that was point, so good. once it gets to a certain point, I'm done for the week. Um, and uh, so Monday, I, Tuesday, I do want to say though that about Greg Holland <laughs> again. Uh, <laughs> I do respect the Royals' deference to the players' wishes. However, it does seem completely insane that he was allowed to not have an MRI. Like, that feels nuts, right? Like, you shouldn't... Well, this is what... um, I posed that question to Nick Kenny, the trainer. So, like, how did he not have an MRI? And his point effectively was, we knew what the MRI was going to show. It was going to show that he had a torn ligament. Hmm. So... It's not like this was like everyone knew the score. Everyone knew his ligament was torn. So it seems like, you know, malfeasance or whatever to just let him keep. But it's it's not like I remember David Wright had a back injury when I was covering the Mets. And he it was like it was like a back sprain or something like that. And he kept refusing an MRI for like weeks and weeks and weeks. And finally they put him in the tube and it showed he had a broken back. And like that is a little different, but this, in this case, they knew he had a torn UCL. Like, I mean, they knew to a, to a, a, a pretty strong degree of certainty that his UCL was torn. So until the performance became enough that he was not capable of going out there and being relatively productive, there was no reason to get an MRI if he didn't want one, because what's the MRI going to show? You know, like, oh, your UCL's really torn. You know, like, Thing, you know, it was really about his pitching. It, like, he was going to pitch until he couldn't pitch anymore. Fair enough. I'm such a Royals homer on this podcast. <laughs> it's very nice. I hope the Royals listen to this. Maybe they'll like me again. Yeah, you called uh, Holland a hero, basically, earlier in this podcast. So. I did. Yeah. And he like he might dislike me more than anyone else on the Royals. So that's great. It's good. <laughs> Shows how professional I am. So Jeff Sullivan wrote something about the Royals' contact rate, their lack of strikeouts. This is not a new thing, obviously, but he showed that this season, relative to the league, they have had the lowest strikeout rate of any team going back to at least 1950. And I've been trying to figure this out going back to last year, because the Royals always make a lot of contact, and when they were terrible, no one thought that was an advantage. Everyone thought it was the backwards (laughs) Royals not walking. And then as soon as the Royals started winning, and maybe, maybe the contact stuff got even more extreme at that point, but once they started winning, we kind of tried to talk ourselves into it being a, an advantage. And I kind of get how it would be. Like if if you're talking about talent acquisition and other teams are maybe not paying as much as they should for contact hitters, like maybe it's just out of vogue and you can zig when everyone else is zagging and you can get contact hitters for less than they're worth or something. But in the actual in-game situation, I, I'm still struggling with whether it helps to be a low strikeout team in the modern baseball era more than it would have at some point in the past. So have you uh, come to any kind of conclusion about whether the Royals putting the ball in play when no one else is putting the ball in play is an advantage above and beyond just, you know, how good the hitters are in any era? No, I I don't think. I think it's about just how good the hitters are. I mean, I think that, I think it's, something of a strategy, something of a coincidence, you know, that they've kind of continued to like, they, they do like guys who put the ball in play. They like guys who they scout as guys who can hit 300. And that's 
up and down the lineup, you know, Eric Hosmer, uh, Lorenzo Kane. Well, those are really the two good homegrown players. Uh, no, Mike Moustak has been uh, a lot better this year in terms of uh, making contacts and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I honestly, I don't know. I haven't thought about it too deeply because it's hard to try and see what the exact trend is because you're right. Like when, when they never walked and they lost 90 games every year, it was the thing that they, people made fun of them for and, oh, the Royals are so backwards and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, a couple of years later when they're, we're winning, it's like become this great, you know, sort of, it's the new money ball. So I don't know. I mean, I do remember in, I think it was 2012, weren't the Giants like really sort of good at that? Like that was a real skill for them. Yeah. Um, and, and, and especially since, you know, it, like defenses were worse a couple of years ago, uh, putting the ball in play is, I don't know, it's hard to get base hits now. So you, you know, maybe it's better to put the ball in play as much as possible because you're going to lose more base hits with, with the shifts and all that stuff. I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I do know it's something of a strategy, but I don't think it's fair to say that that's really the source of what they're doing. I think the source is that they had these really freakishly talented players who couldn't unlock their potential for a long, long time, but you're seeing it with, you know, Lorenzo Cain is going to have a seven, eight win season. You know, Eric Hosmer has been great. Mike Moustakas has been great. Alex Gordon is still fantastic. So I, I don't know necessarily that's because they put the ball in play a ton. I think they're just good players. All right. I've exhausted my bottomless list of Royals topics. <laughs> Sam, you've been kind of quiet about Greg Holland. Do you have anything to... <laughs> Sam, what would it contemporary be, would it novel be... <laughs> reminds you of Greg Holland's play? Would you guys feel different about the way that the Royals handled Greg Holland if he were, if he were say, one year of service time and if he were, say, 14 years of service time as opposed to what he actually was, which is, you know, at the time, four years of service time? Does it make a difference how much he is their asset versus a free agent, sort of, so to speak? I think it might reflect worse on the team if he was younger, if he had never made any money, and then it and then because the player probably has less agency in that decision and is probably more willing to listen to what the team's recommendations are just based on a lack of experience. Maybe, you know, we would view it differently if Greg Holland was, say, Kelvin Herrera or, you know, someone younger. You know, if he was Giordano Ventura last year, like last August they discovered a tear in his arm and he never made any money. And, and so maybe that, maybe that would look a little bit worse. But I, I don't know. If you're an old guy, like if you're an old guy in baseball, you shouldn't listen to what anyone tells you to do. Like if you pitch 14 years, like do not like just do whatever the hell keeps you like waking up in the morning. I think. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of Weezer? I'm. Uh, well, what was the argument? Like, so so you just you just don't like Weezer? Yeah, I don't even draw a line after like two albums or anything. I just oh. I'm not a monster. Like I I like say it ain't so, and you know. Good songs. <laughs> right, right. Okay. But, you like the you like the like audio umami songs yeah. that are like you know, like like uh, chemically, you know, conditioned to for people to like. That's, right. Yeah. yeah, I mean I I would say I'm like most rational humans. I think Weezer's completely sucked since like probably Maladroit and maybe since the Green album. Right. Well everyone Is there a I mean, what does Sam have a separate opinion? I haven't no. listened to that podcast though. Sam... Sorry. I'm a little I'm no, I, I simply, I simply, I, I made a Weezer analogy that wasn't a controversial one. It, it merely be, had a premise that the person listening also liked Weezer, and Ben interrupted by saying, "Well, actually, I hate Weezer, all Weezer." Now, I, I mean, that's extreme. I mean, the most, I think, the most think, controversial opinion that I have about Weezer is that I, I truly, genuinely love the Green album, and. I That's have, a good record. I don't. I I agree. A lot of people. I mean, a lot of people think that the line is drawn before that, and that it's as much of an abomination no. and a uh, a stain on their legacy as uh, Maladroit Onward. I don't feel that way. I I think it's a great album, and I know every word to it, and I love it. I would say the only people who actually probably have a right to hate Weezer are people who used to love Weezer. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's no. If you just don't like the Blue Album, okay, it's just a band you don't like. But the only people that should actually dislike them really, really strongly are people who felt Pinkerton was really important to them and felt the Blue Album was really important to them and have just been disappointed by their subsequent output. And Ben Ben isn't saying, I mean, Ben didn't say anything mean about them. He, he I don't think he's insulting their songcraft or anything like that. He just said he doesn't like the tone of their guitars. And I sort of have a, I have a similar, I can't really 
listen to uh, XTC or The Shins for kind of similar True. reasons. I, there's, I recognize extremely talented people doing extremely yeah. uh, smart things with music, but there's just a pitch to it that makes it no, you're, yeah. not good for me. You're, you're right about ecstasy. Ecstasy is like, uh, that's like eating like a really, really fluffy cupcake too quickly. Like if you're like your shoulder starts to hurt, like the first bite, you know, you hear like senses working overtime and you're like, oh yeah, like this is good. And then like three songs <laughs> into the record, you're like passing out from like the overload. You're like, Christ, like throw it down, Andy. I um, agree with that opinion. Yeah. The shins, I'm okay. And the shins, you know, they're, they're also in the Weezer category for me. Like after that second record, it's like, who gives a shit? I think Beulah's better than Weezer. Well, Beulah's, cl- I mean, Beulah, that's, <laughs> that's not even fair. Beulah's an all time great band. Oh, okay. Oh, my God. Uh-oh. I think the only thing I've ever said that actually made Sam mad was when I said no one likes uh, In the Aeroplane Over the Sea. Well, not only is it... no one actually not likes a, that record. That is absolutely not true. A, pe- a lot of people <laughs> love that record. Stephen Colbert I mean, loves well, that record. You know. That's a great record, too, good. by the way. Like, that is that might be the... I don't know. That might be the, the best record that came out of that decade, in oh. my opinion. What, I'm trying the 90s? to think of the '90s. Yeah, I mean, what else? Maybe like the 1990s. I'm, I'm trying to think. Pretty good what, decade for music. Dec- Decades mean ten years, right? <laughs> I don't know. I need to go back to Latin class. I mean, that's a, it, it's fine. Yeah, as What's far as a better I'm, record even, from the '90s. I don't even want to compare it to like the Chronic. I like, mean, let's just dog, say Dogman Dog Star by Suede is a better record from the '90s. Uh, well, I just—I mean, I would disagree with that. It's a good Copper record. Copper Blue is a better record. Is that the Sugar album? Uh, yeah. Really? Like, Bob Yeah, the sh- Oh, yeah. Copper Blue is definitely better. Then in the aeroplane over the sea, it is not. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is. No. Okay. Well, no. Okay. So there's, okay. Okay. There's computer. not anything on that record. Okay, computer. Sure. Okay, is computer. Debatable. You could argue a couple of built to spill records. Twice are removed. Better. And yeah, I mean, okay, so. I'm fine with it. Uh, if you're feeling sinister, might be a better record from that decade. I'm not okay. I'm not. I'm gonna pull back, and it probably is not. But, but it is. I mean, it is a genuinely great album. I mean, this is not just like some like light piece of indie rock that I like. Most no, indie rock. Is, I think it's. I think it's. See, this, what I think is. I think it's a good record that people want to love more than they actually do. I think they do. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> 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 I don't know. I, I went to a Jeff Lincoln concert and lots of people cried. Oh, God. <laughs> there was that great moment. Remember that moment on Parks and Rec uh, when they were playing, like, uh, know, your, know Your Boo? And uh, Aubrey Plaza kept doing all these neutral milk hotel answers, <laughs> and Chris Pratt couldn't get any of them right. <laughs> right. That, was a, that was a good that was That was my favorite neutral milk hotel moment. <laughs> okay. All right. We've kept you long enough. This has been the a, yeah. the highlight of our recent podcast schedule. As usual, we uh, will muddle through somehow until enough time has passed that we don't feel guilty about asking you to come back. I mean, I'll be available. I got to go work on a story now for Sunday. I got to go find some lunch too. Um, so it's going to be yeah. a busy day for me. Can't help but you with yeah. that. All right. Well, yeah. people should follow Andy at McCullough Star on Twitter. You can. Read all of his work at kansascity.com slash sports slash royals. Make sure you add the last slash or you might read the chief stuff and wonder why Andy is so bad at writing about baseball. All right. That's it for this week. You can join our Facebook group and the many threads about people's favorite Weezer albums at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. You can send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. You can rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. And you can support our sponsor. You must support our sponsor by going to baseballreference.com and using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Have a nice weekend. We'll be back on Monday. Fun. You could anytime. Monday, Tuesday. Anytime. <laughs>
I watched half an episode of Justified, which was really satisfying. <laughs> so it's great when you're on. That's <laughs> really that's fantastic. How many people were murdered? <laughs> the thing about Justified that I it took me a, wa- a long time to to realize it's not so much the number of people who are murdered or killed in any way. It's that they never make a case against any of the criminals. <laughs> they're they're oh. lawmen, and you they're doing law work they're doing it seems like they're doing detective work and they're getting witnesses and they're getting people to flip and they're there to see crimes and there's even a wire or two but there's never a person arrested they just pursue them until they kill them (laughs) it's like they're just waiting for the moment they can shoot the criminal and then that's when the season ends it's the only way to get real justice i guess it's actually trying to spare the taxpayers the expense of lifelong incarceration endless appeals yeah, yeah. all right see you andy bye <laughs> later guys <laughs>